Welcome to Mysteries Abound, a collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing, and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. Welcome everyone to the Mysteries Abound podcast. This is your host Paul and this is episode 63. This show is entitled The Unsolved Mystery of the Tunnels at Bayi. But to begin the podcast from the mysteriousbritain.co.uk website, the story of Kenobi Dick. This story relates to a legend common throughout Britain namely that of a secret cavern containing sleeping warriors. Often a test is conferred to the person who is shown into the cavern. Usually the tests are failed. Once upon a time in the Borders region, there lived a horse cowper or trader named Kenobi Dick. He was widely admired and feared for his fierce courage. One night with the moon high in the sky, he was riding over Bounden Moor on the west side of Eildon Hills the scene of the prophecies of Thomas the Rhymer. He had with him a brace of horses, which he had not sold at the local market. On his way along the moonlit road, he came across a stranger, who was dressed in a style that had not been worn for centuries. The stranger asked the price of the horses, and the stranger promptly paid him in gold coinage from the same period as his dress. However, gold was gold, and when the stranger asked if he could meet him at the same place, at the same time, Kenobi Dick agreed. On their third meeting, Kenobi Dick had become a little more than curious to learn about his clandestine buyer, and he managed to get the stranger to agree to take him to his abode. The stranger suggested that he had no problem in him seeing his dwelling, but warned him that if he were to lose courage at what he was to see, then he would rue it all his life. The stranger led the way along a narrow footpath, which led up the hills between the southern and central peaks to a place called Luckin Hare, which is also famous for the meeting of witches. They entered into the hillside by an opening that Dick had never seen before, although he was familiar with the area, and found themselves in a cavern passage. The stranger turned to Dick and said that he may still return if he so wished. Dick just shrugged his shoulders and urged him to press on. They walked onward and came to rows and rows of stables. In every stall there was a coal-black horse, and by every horse lay a knight in jet-black armour, with a drawn sword in each hand. The hall was filled with a soft light from evenly spaced burning torches set into the walls. Each knight was silent as a stone and there was a strange stillness in the air. At last they came to the back of the cavern hall and to a large oak table on which a sheathed sword and a horn lay. At this the stranger who seemed to be Thomas of Equidun or True Thomas turned to Dick and said that the man who shall sound the horn and draw the sword shall, if his heart does not fail him, be the king over all Britain. But all depends on courage and of the taking of the horn, or the sword, first. At first, Dick wanted to take the sword, but he was seized with a supernatural terror, thinking that to draw the sword would offend the powers of the mountain. He took up the horn and put it to his lips, and quaking he let out a feeble blast that seemed to echo like thunder around the hall. At once a tumult erupted in the hall, as with a cry and a clash of armour, every one of the knights arose from their slumber. The fearsome army rose before him, and terribly frightened, Dick tried to free the sword from its scabbard, 
whereupon a voice boomed, Woe to the coward that ever he was born, who did not draw the sword before he blew the horn. At this he was blasted from the cavern, borne upon a supernatural wind, and deposited down the banking outside the entrance. Kenobi Dick was found the next morning by local shepherds. He had just breath left within him to blurt out his tale before he died. And from the www.unmuseum.org website, an article by Lee Christek. Sea Monsters That Weren't. On a December day in 1848, the sailing ship Pekin was becalmed off the Cape of Good Hope near southern Africa, when a crew member spotted a strange creature in the water. Careful examination of the animal by use of a telescope, revealed it to be snake-like, with a large head and a shaggy mane. Only two months before, the HMS Daedalus had reported seeing a sea serpent in that very same region. Amid great excitement, a small boat, its crew prepared to capture the animal, was lowered into the water. The captain, Frederick Smith, watched from a distance, with concern for the safety of his men, as the small boat approached the creature. To the captain's surprise, the animal did not move at all as the boat drew near. He was even more surprised when the crew of the boat proceeded to tow the creature back to the Pekin. The sea serpent turned out to be a 20-foot-long piece of floating seaweed, with a root shaped like a head and neck. Could the Daedalus sea serpent have been of similar origin? Judging distance, size and motion of an object in the sea is extremely difficult. Objects on land can be compared to nearby trees and boulders. In the water, only the waves offer a clue to scale, and the size of waves vary enormously depending upon weather conditions. The movement of the waves can also suggest motion where there is none. Arthur Adams, a ship surgeon in the 1860s, spotted what appeared to be a mysterious creature moving through the water by using lateral undulations of its body. His ship's course was altered to intercept the animal and capture it. When they approached the thing, Adams wrote, By this time, however, a closer and more critical inspection had taken place, and the supposed sea monster had turned himself into a long dark root, gnarled and twisted of a tree, secured to the moorings of a fishing net, with a strong tide passing it rapidly, thus giving it an apparent lifelike movement and serpentine aspect. The Daedalus affair might also be explained by an abandoned native canoe painted like a snake. El Sprague de Camp suggested the owners of the canoe may have harpooned a large sea animal, like a whale shark, and they either spilled into the sea when the animal surfaced under the boat, or jumped in panic when they could not cut the line dragging the canoe. One unusual, real sea creature that might be mistaken for a sea monster is the oarfish. The oarfish is a strange eel-like animal that has been measured at up to 25 feet in length. Some reports have described specimens twice that size. The oarfish is bright silver in colour and has a high bright red crest of spikes running down the back of its snake-like body. Its strange, startling appearance has led it to be identified as a monster on at least one occasion. Two men were gathering seaweed on the coast of Bermuda in 1860 when they came across a serpent-like creature stranded in the rocks. They killed it and the animal was reported as a sea serpent until a naturalist eventually showed up and identified the creature for what it really was. An unusual species of frilled shark might also be taken for a sea serpent. Like the oarfish, it is eel-shaped. It has a single dorsal fin placed well along the back of its body, which can appear as a mane. 
the frilled shark has an ancient history and is almost a living fossil. It would truly be a likely candidate for a sea serpent if it was only a little larger. So far, the largest known frill shark was only six feet, nose to tail. If there is a larger relative of this animal swimming in the seas, it might well be identified as a sea serpent. In 1880, Captain S.W. Hanna netted a long eel-like shark that measured some 25 feet. While not matching the description of the frilled shark exactly, it probably is a close relative and suggests there may be some giant frilled sharks in the sea that could be taken for sea serpents. One dangerous candidate as a sea monster is the saltwater crocodile. These creatures living in the Indian Ocean and the area around Southeast Asia and Australia have been measured up to lengths of 18 feet and weigh almost a tonne. Unconfirmed reports indicate they may get as long as 30 feet. They are hungry, aggressive and often attack people. The giant squid may account for some sea serpent sightings too. Giant squids probably qualify as sea monsters just as they are, growing up to 50 feet long with 10 arms and eyes over a foot in diameter. If the cone-shaped squid head was sticking out of the water near close to a visible arm, the squid might look like a serpent from head to tail from a distance. A famous serpent sighting off Greenland by Hans Egedi in 1745 may be explained this way. Also, a single tentacle with a club of suckers on the end might look like the head and neck of a plesiosaur. In 1875, the bark Pauline spotted a sperm whale with a snake-like creature wrapped around its midsection. The crew reported this sea serpent eventually dragged the whale down to its death. More likely the snake was the arm of a large squid in battle with the whale. Even mundane sea animals may be mistaken for sea monsters. Fish or dolphins travelling together in a line may appear as a series of undulating humps with dorsal fins. Even a mass of low-lying birds skimming across the water at a distance have been mistaken for a single sea serpent. The basking shark is one creature that is more likely to be mistaken for a sea monster after it is dead rather than when it was alive. Basking sharks are the second largest fish in the sea and grow to lengths of 40 feet. Like the great blue whale, they are harmless filter feeders with enormous mouths. The shark skims the surface of the ocean eating tiny floating plankton. The water exits the shark's mouth through large gill slits on the side of the head. Because the gills of the basking shark rot quickly after death, the carcass can give the appearance of having a long, narrow neck without the head. Several basking shark remains have been misidentified as sea monsters. Some sea monster reports may not involve just unusual creatures, but unusual conditions. Right before a storm at sea, air of two different temperatures can form layers just above the surface of the sea, perhaps seven or eight feet above the waves. The different density of the two layers can cause light to bounce, forming a mirage. In this case, the mirage causes objects to be elongated, as if by a funhouse mirror, vertically, but not horizontally. Seals, whales and dolphins breaking the surface under these conditions will appear as thin, tall, unknown creatures. Norsemen often spotted these creatures and took their appearance as an omen warning of an impending storm. Because of the strange atmospheric conditions, rather than anything supernatural, this warning was accurate. Around 9pm on Sunday, October the 8th, 1871, a fire started in a barn in the alley behind 137 De Coven Street in Chicago. 
Two days later, the blaze died out, after burning nearly three and a third square miles of the city. The Great Chicago Fire killed 300 people, left some 100,000 homeless, and destroyed $200 million worth of property. In all of American and even world history, no bovine is more famous than a cow belonging to Patrick and Catherine O'Leary that was accused of starting what Fire Marshal Robert A. Williams called a hurricane of fire and cinders. From the www.mentalfloss.com website, an article by Matt Soniak. Did a cow really cause the Great Chicago Fire? Even as the fire cut a swath through the city, neighbours and newspaper reporters quickly placed the blame on the O'Learys and their cow. In the early hours of October the 9th, newspapers first reported that the blaze started when the cow, as Catherine milked it, kicked over a kerosene lantern. After the fire was put out, the story evolved and more blame fell on the O'Learys. Some papers reported that Mrs O'Leary had been on welfare and that when city officials discovered that she'd been selling her cow's milk on the side, they cut her off. The fire, it was implied, was an act of revenge. Other newspapers maintained that the fire was an accident and that a lantern had simply been knocked over, either by the cow or by Mrs O'Leary. That November, the Board of Police and Fire Commissioners started an inquiry into the cause of and response to the fire. In interviews with the Board, Mrs O'Leary testified both that she never milked the cows in the evening and that she was asleep in bed when the fire started, having gone to bed early complaining of a sore foot. Daniel Pegleg Sullivan, a neighbour who was the first person to raise the alarm about the fire, also testified and confirmed Catherine's alibi. After two months and 1,100 pages of handwritten testimony, the board members couldn't say much about the origin of the fire, except that it started in the barn. Whether it originated from a spark blown from a chimney on that windy night, or was set on fire by human agency, they said, we are unable to determine. Despite the board's conclusions, or lack thereof, the damage to Catherine O'Leary and her cow was done. The story of the cow and the lantern circulated quickly and wildly and took hold in the public imagination and the history books. Mrs O'Leary lived out the rest of her life as a virtual recluse, reportedly only leaving her home to attend Mass. Every October, reporters came to her looking for a quote for their fire anniversary stories and she shooed them away, invoking the name of her son James, who grew up to be a gambling boss known as Big Jim O'Leary. I know bad people, she'd say, as she showed the men the door. She died in 1895. Her obituary and death certificate listed the cause as acute pneumonia, but neighbours and friends said the real cause was a broken heart from the unfounded blame she received. A century after her death, Catherine and her cow were cleared of any wrongdoing and another suspect was discovered. Richard Bales, an assistant regional counsel with the Chicago Title Insurance Company, became interested in the fire when he wrote a paper about it for a college course. His company maintains the only set of land records that survived the blaze of 1871 and he used them to dig further into the legend of the O'Leary's cow and the cause of the fire. In 1997, he published an article and later a book on his research. One thing he found was that the fire probably wasn't intentionally set. The O'Leary's barn was full of animals, some of them belonging to neighbours and some used for Catherine's milk business. There were five cows, a calf and a horse. There was also a new wagon nearby in the alley and none of the property or real estate was insured. Had Catherine been in the barn when the fire broke out, it seems unlikely that she would have run back into her home and allowed her property to both literally and figuratively go up in smoke, Bales wrote. 
Instead, she would have cried for help and attempted to extinguish what was then just a minor barn fire and save the building and its contents. The cow also appears to be blameless, and several reporters came forward decades after the fire to admit that the story of the cow kicking the lantern was a fabrication, or at least came from unreliable sources. Reporter Michael O'Hearn, who was working for the Chicago Republican at the time of the fire, admitted in a 1921 column in the Chicago Tribune that he and two colleagues made the cow story up to add some colour to their copy. After that, another reporter, John Kelly, wrote to the O'Leary's grandson saying that he was the one that wrote the first instance of the cow story under O'Hearn's byline since his colleague's drinking habit prevented him from writing and filing the story. Meanwhile, the Chicago Daily Journal explained that on the night of the fire, one of their reporters had gone to the O'Leary's neighbourhood and heard the cow story from some neighbours there and the paper ran it without looking into it any further. Recollections of the fire published by one of the O'Leary's neighbours say that the story started when some neighbourhood kids who hadn't been in the barn or near it, but spent the night telling anyone who would listen about a cow kicking a lantern anyway. The most significant thing Bales found in his research was reason to suspect that the fire was started by Pegleg Sullivan, the man who first noticed it. When he testified before the investigative board, Sullivan said that he visited the O'Leary house around 8pm and found Catherine in bed and Patrick ready to join her. He headed home, but then kept going past his house and stopped in front of a neighbour's house to smoke a pipe. He looked up and saw the fire coming from the O'Leary's barn and ran into it to try to extinguish the flames and free the animals before seeking help. After mapping out the various homes and properties, Bale doubts Sullivan's version of the events. First, the buildings were arranged in such a way that from where he stood to smoke his pipe, Sullivan would not have been able to see the barn because another home would have blocked his view. What's more, as one might guess from his nickname, Sullivan had a wooden leg and couldn't move very fast. Yet he claimed that he ran from his smoking spot to the barn a distance of about half the length of a football field, and escaped the barn before the fire consumed it, then ran to alert the O'Learys and the authorities. Given his condition, the distances involved and the speed with which the fire spread, Bales argues Sullivan could not have done what he had claimed to without being injured by the fire. There's also the matter of why Sullivan walked past his own house to smoke his pipe in front of his neighbour's house. Bale thinks that that was part of an alibi, claiming to smoke his pipe where he did put him outside and close enough to the barn that he could claim to have seen the fire, but out of view of his neighbours, the McLawlands, who were having a party that night and would have been able to see him if he was standing in front of his own house. Bales argues that Sullivan was in or around the barn that night. His mother kept one of her cows there, and he may have gone to feed it. And by accident, with a careless flick of a match, or a stray ember from his pipe, or by bumping a lantern, started the fire. When he realised he couldn't put the fire out on his own, he ran for help and came up with a cover story to escape blame. In 1997, convinced by Bales's argument and evidence, the Chicago City Council passed an ordinance exonerating Mrs. O'Leary and her cow. Now here's a story that's going to make you think. Physicists may have evidence that the universe is a computer simulation. From the HuffingtonPost.co.uk website, an article by Michael Rundle. 
Physicists say they may have evidence that the universe is a computer simulation. How? They made a computer simulation of the universe and it looks sort of like us. A long proposed thought experiment put forward by philosophers and popular culture points out that any civilization of sufficient size and intelligence would eventually create a simulation universe, if such a thing were possible. And since there would therefore be many more simulations, within simulations, within simulations, than the real universes, it is therefore more likely than not that our world is artificial. Now a team of researchers at the University of Bonn in Germany, led by Silas Bean, say they have evidence this may be true. In a paper named Constraints on the Universe as a Numerical Simulation, they point out that current simulations of the universe, which do exist but which are extremely weak and small, naturally put limits on physical laws. Technology Review explains that the problem with all simulations is that the laws of physics, which appear continuous, have to be superimposed onto a discrete three-dimensional lattice which advances in steps of time. What that basically means is that by just being a simulation, the computer would put limits on, for instance, the energy that particles can have within the program. These limits would be experienced by those living within the simulation and as it turns out, something which looks just like these limits do in fact exist. For instance, something known as the Kreisen Zatsapen Kuzmin, or GZK cutoff, is an apparent boundary of the energy that cosmic ray particles can have. This is caused by interaction with cosmic background radiation. But Bean and Co's paper argues that the pattern of this rule mirrors what you might expect from a computer simulation. Naturally, at this point, the science becomes pretty tricky to wade through, and we would advise you to read the paper itself to try and get the full detail of the idea. But the basic impression is an intriguing one. Like a prisoner in a pitch-black cell, we may never be able to see the walls of our prison, but through physics, we may be able to reach out and touch them. If you make a visit to the show notes at www.origins.info, click on the Mysteries Abound logo to go to the Mysteries Abound show notes, and then on episode 63, and then on the link to this article, there are a couple of links within the article that may take you to more information, and there is also a slideshow of 58 amazing space photos. Just to make you think that, wow, if this is a computer simulation, it's pretty good. Easter Island is branded into popular consciousness as the home of the mysterious and towering Moai statues. But these are not the only curiosity the South Pacific Island holds. Where the Moai are fascinating for their unknown purpose and mysterious craftsmen, the island's lost language of Rongo Rongo is equally perplexing. The unique written language seems to have appeared suddenly in the 1700s. But within just two centuries, it was exiled to obscurity. From the www.daminteresting.com website, an article by Stephanie Benson. The Other Mystery of Easter Island. Known as Rapa Nui to the island's inhabitants, Rongo Rongo is a writing system comprised of pictographs it has been found carved into many oblong wooden tablets and other artefacts from the island's history. The art of writing was not known in any nearby islands, and the script's mere existence is sufficient to confound anthropologists. 
The most plausible explanation so far has been that the Easter Islanders were inspired by the writing they observed in 1770 when the Spanish claimed the island. However, despite its recency, no linguist or archaeologist has been able to successfully decipher the Rongo Rongo language. When early Europeans discovered Easter Island, its somewhat isolated ecosystem was suffering from the effects of limited natural resources, deforestation and overpopulation. Over the following years, the island's population of 4,000 or so was slowly eroded by Western disease and deportation by slave traders. By 1877, only about 110 inhabitants remained. Rongo Rongo was one victim of these circumstances. The colonisers of Easter Island had decided that the strange language was too closely tied to the inhabitants' pagan past and forbade it as a form of communication. Missionaries forced the inhabitants to destroy the tablets with Rongo Rongo inscriptions. In 1864, Father Joseph A. Rod became the first non-islander to record Rongo Rongo. Writing before the ultimate decline of the Easter Island society, he noted that one finds in all the houses wooden tables or staffs covered with sorts of hieroglyphs. Despite his interest in the subject, he was not able to find an islander willing to translate the texts. The islanders were understandably reluctant to help, given that the Europeans forcefully suppressed the use of their native writing. Sometime later, Bishop Florentin Yelson of Tahiti attempted to translate the texts. A young Easter Islander named Matero claimed to be able to read Rongo Rongo, and for 15 days the bishop kept a record while the boy dictated from the transcriptions. Bishop Yelson gave up the effort when he realised that Matero was a fraud and the boy had assigned several meanings to the same symbol. In 1886, paymaster William Thompson of the ship USS Mohican became interested in the pictographic system during a journey to collect artefacts for the National Museum in Washington. He had obtained two rare tablets engraved with the script and he was curious about their meaning. He asked 83-year-old islander Yurei Variko for assistance in translation because his age made him more likely to have knowledge of the language. The man reluctantly admitted to knowing what the tablets said, but did not wish to break the orders of the missionaries. As a result, Yurei Vaiko refused to touch the tablets, let alone decipher them. Thompson was determined, however, and decided that Yurei Vaiko might be forthcoming under the influence of alcohol. After having a few drinks kindly provided by Thompson, the Easter Islander looked at the tablets once again. The man burst into song, singing a fertility chant which described the mating of gods and goddesses. William Thompson and his companions quickly took down his words. This was potentially a big breakthrough, but Thompson struggled with assigning words to the pictographs. Furthermore, he couldn't find another islander who was willing to confirm the accuracy of his translation. While Thompson was ultimately unable to read Rongo Rongo, the translation that Eco provided has remained one of the most valuable clues on how to decipher the tablets. In the following decades, many scholars have attempted to make sense of this mystery. In 1932, Wilhelm de Hevesse tried to link Rongo Rongo to the Indus script of the Indus Valley civilization in India, claiming that as many as 40 Rongo Rongo symbols had a correlating symbol in the script from India. Further examination found this link to be much more superficial than originally believed. In the 1950s, Thomas Barthel became one of the first linguists of the modern era to make a study of Rongo Rongo. He stated that the system contained 120 basic elements that when combined formed 1500 different signs. Furthermore, he asserted that the symbols represented both objects and ideas. This made it more difficult to produce a translation because any individual symbol could potentially represent an entire phrase. 
Parthel was successful, however, in identifying an artefact known as the Mummery Tablet as a lunar calendar. Some of the most recent research has been conducted by a linguist named Stephen Fisher. Having studied nearly every surviving example of Rongo Rongo, he took particular interest in a four-foot-long scepter that had once been the property of an Easter Island chief. The artefact is covered in pictographs, and Fisher noticed that every third symbol on this staff has an additional phallus-like symbol attached to it. This led Fisher to believe that all Rongo Rongo texts have a structure steeped in counts of three, or triads. He has also studied Yuri Veiko's fertility chant, which lent additional support to the concept. Iko has always named a god first, his goddess mate second, and their offspring third. Fisher has also tried to make the claim that all Rongo Rongo texts relate creation myths. Looking at another text, he has suggested that a sentence with a symbol of a bird, a fish and a sun reads, All the birds copulated with fish, there issued forth the sun. While this could be the translation, it bears little resemblance to Yuri Vaiko's chant about the matings of gods and goddesses. Rongo Rongo naturally commands a great deal of interest from linguists, anthropologists and archaeologists. Only 25 texts are known to have survived. Should anyone find a workable translation for Rongo Rongo, the knowledge stored on the remaining tablets might explain the mysterious statues of Easter Island, the sudden appearance of the written language, and the island's history and customs as a whole. However, much like the statues which have so captivated popular imagination, Rongo Rongo has so far defied all attempts at explanation. From the blogs.smithsonianmag.com website, The Unsolved Mystery of the Tunnels of Bayi. There is nothing remotely Elysian about the Phlegrian fields, which lie on the north shore of the Bay of Naples. Nothing sylvan, nothing green. The fields are part of the caldera of a volcano that is the twin of Mount Vesuvius. A few miles to the east, the destroyer of Pompeii. The volcano is still active, it last erupted in 1538, and once possessed a crater that measured eight miles across, but most of it is underwater now. The portion that is still accessible on land consists of a barren, rubble-strewn plateau. Fire bursts from the rocks in places, and clouds of sulphurous gas snake out of vents leading up from deep underground. The fields in short are hellish, and it is no surprise that in Greek and Roman myth they were associated with all manner of strange tales. Most interesting perhaps is the legend of the Cumaean Sibyl, who took her name from the nearby town of Cumae, a Greek colony dating to about 500 BC a time when the Etruscans still held sway much of central Italy and Rome with nothing but a city-state ruled over by a line of tyrannical kings. The Sibyl, so the story goes, was a woman named Amalthea who lurked in a cave on the Phlegrian fields. She had once been young and beautiful, beautiful enough to attract the attentions of the sun god Apollo, who offered her one wish in exchange for her virginity. Pointing to a heap of dust, Amalthea asked for a year of life for each particle in the pile. But, as is usually the way in such old tales, failed to allow for the vindictiveness of the gods. Ovid in Metamorphosis has her lament that, 
Like a fool, I did not ask that all those years should come with ageless youth as well. Instead she aged, but could not die. Virgil depicts her scribbling the future on oak leaves that lay scattered about the entrance to her cave, and states that the cave itself concealed an entrance to the underworld. The best known and from our perspective the most interesting of all the tales associated with the Sibyl is supposed to date to the reign of Tarquinius Superbus, Tarquin the Proud. He was the last of the mythic kings of Rome, and some historians at least concede that he really did live and rule in the 6th century BC. According to the legend, the Sibyl travelled to Tarquin's palace bearing nine books of prophecy that set out the whole future of Rome. She offered the set to the king for a price so enormous that he summarily declined, at which the prophetess went away, burned the first three of the books, and returned, offering the remaining six to Tarquin at the same price. Once again the king refused, though less arrogantly this time, and the Sibyl burned three more of the precious volumes. The third time she approached the king, he thought it wise to accede to her demands. Rome purchased the three remaining books of the prophecy at the original steep price. What makes this story of interest to historians as well as folklorists is that there is good evidence that three Greek scrolls, known collectively as the Sibylline books, really were kept closely guarded for hundreds of years after the time of Tarquin the Proud. Secreted in a stone chest in a vault beneath the Temple of Jupiter, the scrolls were brought out at times of crisis and used, not as a detailed guide to the future of Rome, but as a manual to set out the rituals required to avert looming disasters. They served the Republic well until the temple burned down in 83 BC, and so vital were they thought to be that huge efforts were made to reassemble the lost prophecies by sending envoys to all the great towns of the known world to look for fragments that might have come from the same source. These reassembled prophecies were pressed back into service and not finally destroyed until 405, when they are thought to have been burned by a noted general by the name of Flavius Stilicho. The existence of the Sibylline books certainly suggests that Rome took the legend of the Cumaean Sibyl seriously. And indeed, the geographer Strabo, writing at about the time of Christ, clearly states that there actually was an oracle of the dead, somewhere in the Phlegrean fields. So it is scarcely surprising that archaeologists and scholars of romantic bent have from time to time gone in search of a cave or tunnel that might be identified as the real home of a real Sibyl, nor that some have hoped that they would discover an entrance, if not to Hades, then at least to some spectacular subterranean caverns. Over the years, several spots, the best known of which lies close to Lake Avernus, have been identified as the Anthro della Sibylla, the Cave of the Sibyl. None though leads to anywhere that might reasonably be confused with an entrance to the underworld. Because of this the quest continued, and gradually the remaining searchers focused their attentions on the old Roman resort of Baiae, which lies on the Bay of Naples at a spot where the Phlegrean fields vanish beneath the Tyrrhenian Sea. Two thousand years ago, Bayi was a flourishing spa, noted both for its mineral cures and for the scandalous immorality that flourished there. Today it is little more than a collection of picturesque ruins, but it was there in the 1950s that the entrance to a hitherto unknown antrum was discovered by the Italian archaeologist Amedio Maiuri. It had been concealed for years beneath a vineyard. Maiuri's workers had to clear a 15-foot thick accumulation of earth and vines. The antrum of Bayi proved difficult to explore. A sliver of tunnel, obviously ancient and man-made, disappeared into a hillside close to the ruins of a temple. The first curious onlookers who pressed their heads into its cramped entrance discovered a pitch-black passageway that was uncomfortably hot and wreathed in fumes. 
They penetrated only a few feet into the interior before beating a hasty retreat. There the mystery rested. And it was not revived until the site came to the attention of Robert Paget in the early 1960s. Paget was not a professional archaeologist. He was a Briton who worked at a nearby NATO airbase, lived in Bailly and excavated mostly as a hobby. As such, his theories need to be viewed with caution. And it is worth noting that when the academic papers of the British School at Rome agreed to publish the results of the decade or more that he and an American colleague named Keith Jones spent digging in the tunnel, a firm distinction was drawn between the school's endorsement of a straightforward description of the findings and its refusal to pass comment on the theories Paget had come up with to explain his perplexing discoveries. These theories eventually made their appearance in book form but attracted little attention, surprisingly, because the pair claimed to have stumbled across nothing less than a real-life entrance to the underworld. Paget was one of the handful of men who still hoped to locate the cave of Sybil described by Virgil, and it was this obsession that made him willing to risk the inhospitable interior. He and Jones pressed their way through the narrow opening and found themselves in a high but narrow tunnel, eight feet tall but just 21 inches wide. The temperature inside was uncomfortable but bearable, and although the airless interior was still tinged with volcanic fumes, the two men pressed on into a passage that they claimed had probably not been entered for 2,000 years. Following the tunnel downward, Paget and Jones calculated that it fell only around 10 feet in the first 400 feet before terminating in a solid wall of rubble that blocked the way. But even the scanty evidence the two men had managed to gather during this early phase of their investigation persuaded them that it was worth pressing on. For one thing, the sheer amount of spoil that had been hauled into the depths suggested a considerable degree of organisation. Years later, when the excavation of the tunnel was complete, it would be estimated that 700 cubic yards of rubble and 30,000 man journeys had been required to fill it. For another, using a compass, Paget determined that the terrace where the tunnel system began was oriented towards midsummer sunrise, and hence the solstice, while the mysterious passage itself ran exactly east-west and was thus on the equinoctial sunrise line. This suggested that it served some ritual purpose. It took Paget and Jones working in difficult conditions with a small group of volunteers, the better part of a decade to clear and explore what turned out to be a highly ambitious tunnel system. Its ceremonial function seemed to be confirmed by the existence of huge numbers of niches for oil lamps. They occurred every yard in the tunnel's lower levels, far more frequently than would have been required merely to provide illumination. The builders had also given great thought to the layout of the complex, which seemed to have been designed to conceal its mysteries. Within the portion of the tunnels choked by rubble, Paget and Jones found, hidden between an S-bend, a second blockage. This, the explorers discovered, marked the place where two tunnels diverged. Basing his thinking on the remains of some ancient pivots, Paget suggested that the spot had at one time harboured a concealed door. Swung closed, this would have masked the entrance to a second tunnel that acted as a shortcut to the lower levels. Open partially, it could have been used, the explorer suggested, as a remarkably efficient ventilation system. Hot, vitiated air would be sucked out of the tunnel complex at ceiling level, while currents of cooler air from the surface were constantly drawn in along the floor. But only when the men went deeper into the hillside did the greatest mystery of the tunnels reveal itself. There, hidden at the bottom of a much steeper passage, and behind a second S-bend that prevented anyone from approaching from seeing it until the final moment, ran an underground stream. A small landing stage projected out into the sulphurous waters, which ran from left to right across the tunnel and disappeared into the darkness. 
and the river itself was hot to the touch. In places it approached boiling point. Conditions at this low point in the tunnel complex certainly were Stygian. The temperature had risen to 120 degrees Fahrenheit. The air stank of sulphur. It was a relief to force a way across the stream and up a steep ascending passage on the other side, which eventually opened into an antechamber, oriented this time to the helical sunset, that Paget dubbed the Hidden Sanctuary. From there, more hidden staircases ascended to the surface to emerge behind the ruins of water tanks that fed the spas at the ancient temple complex. What was this great antrum, as Page dubbed it? Who had built it, and for what purpose? And who had it stopped up? After a decade of exploration, he and Jones had formulated answers to those questions. The tunnel system the two men proposed had been constructed by priests to mimic a visit to the Greeks' mythical underworld. In this interpretation, the stream represented the fabled River Styx, which the dead had to cross to enter Hades. A small boat, the explorer speculated, would have been waiting at the landing stage to ferry visitors across. On the far side, these initiates would have climbed the stairs to the hidden sanctuary, and it was there they would have met who? One possibility, Page thought, was a priestess posing as the Cumian Sibyl, and for this reason he took to calling the complex the Antrum of Initiation. The tunnels then, in Page's view, might have been constructed to allow priests to persuade their patrons, or perhaps simply wealthy travellers, that they had travelled through the underworld. The scorching temperatures below ground and the thick drifts of volcanic vapour would certainly have given that impression. And if visitors were tired, befuddled or perhaps simply drugged, it would have been possible to create a powerfully otherworldly experience capable of persuading even the sceptical. In favour of this argument, Page went on, was the careful planning of the tunnels. The dividing of the ways with its hidden door would have allowed a party of priests and the Cumian Sibyl too, perhaps, quick access to the hidden sanctuary and the encounter with the river Styx would have been enhanced by the way the tunnel's S-bend construction concealed its presence from new initiates. The system furthermore closely matched ancient myths relating visits to the underworld. In Virgil's Aeneid, for instance, the hero Aeneas crosses the Styx only once on his journey underground, emerging from Hades by an alternate route. The tunnel complex at Baye seemed to have been constructed to allow such a journey, and Virgil, in Page's argument, had lived nearby and might himself have been an initiate in Baye's mysteries. Dating the construction of the complex was a greater challenge. The explorers found little evidence inside the tunnels that might point to the identity of the builders. Just a mason's plumbob in one of the niches and some ancient graffiti. But working on the assumption that the passages had formed part of the surrounding temple complex, they concluded that they could best be dated to the late archaic period of around 550 BC, at pretty much the time, that is, that the Cumian Sibyl was said to have lived. If so, the complex was almost certainly the work of the Greek colonists of Cumae itself. As for when the tunnels had been blocked up, that, Page thought, must have taken place after Virgil's time, during the early imperial period of Roman history. But who exactly ordered the work or why, he could not say. In time, Page and Jones solved at least some of the great Antrim's mysteries, in 1965, they persuaded a friend, Colonel David Lewis of the US Army, and his son, to investigate the sticks for them using scuba apparatus. The two divers followed the stream into a tunnel that dramatically deepened, and discovered the source of its mysterious heat. Two springs of boiling water, superheated by the volcanic chambers of the Phlegrean Fields. Whether Page and Jones' elaborate theories are correct remains a matter of debate. That the tunnel complex serves some ritual purpose can hardly be doubted if the explorer's compass bearings are correct, 
and the specifics of this remarkable construction seem to support much of what Paget says. Of alternative explanations, only one, that the tunnels were once part of a system designed to supply hot mineral-rich waters to bathhouses above, feels plausible, though it certainly does not explain features such as S-bends, designed to hide the wonders ahead from approaching visitors. The central question may well be whether it is possible to see Paget's channel of boiling water deep underground as anything other than a deliberate representation of one of the fabled rivers that girdled Hades. If not the Styx itself, then perhaps the Philegathon, the mythic river of fire that in Dante's Inferno boils the souls of the departed. Historians of the ancient world do not dispute that powerful priests were fully capable of mounting elaborate deceptions. And as a recent geological report on the far better known Greek oracle site at Delphi demonstrated that fissures in the rocks nearby brought intoxicating and anaesthetic gases to the surface at that spot, suggesting that it may have been selected and used for a purpose much like the one Paget proposed at Bailly. Yet much remains mysterious about the great Antrim, not least the vexed question of how ancient builders, working with primitive tools at the end of the Bronze Age, could possibly have known of the existence of the river Styx, much less excavated a tunnel that so neatly intercepted it. There is no trace of the boiling river at the surface, and it was not until the 1970s after Paget's death that his collaborators finally discovered, by injecting coloured dyes into its waters, that it flows into the sea miles away, on the northern side of Cape Messino. Little seems to have changed a Bailly since Paget's day. His discoveries have made remarkably little impact on tourism at the ancient resort, and even today the network of passages he worked so long to clear remain locked and barely visited. A local guide can be hired, but the complex remains difficult, hot and uncomfortable to visit. Little attempt is to exploit the idea that it was once thought to be an entrance to the underworld, and pending reinvestigation by trained archaeologists, not much more can be said about the tunnel's origin and purpose. But even among the many mysteries of the ancient world, the great Antrim on the Bay of Naples surely remains among the most intriguing. The music for today's podcast came from the musicalley.com website. The bandwidth was provided by TalkShoe at www.talkshoe.com and the show notes are held at www.origins.info and remember Origins is spelled O-R-I-G-I-N-Z. And to bring the podcast to a close, a story from the paranormal.about.com website. The New Zealand Poltergeist, and it was posted by Big Brad Wolf. I grew up in New Zealand, a country rich in spiritual culture from Western to Maori beliefs and practices. Even the government's transit authority must halt work when Matakati, or Maori seers, indicate the presence of burial grounds and spirits. In fact, a recent halting of a roading bypass project confirmed a Matakati's prediction when bodies were indeed unearthed, then re-interned in another burial place. Maori have long seen and interacted with the deceased, and many, many people in New Zealand have stories to tell. I grew up in a small town in the 1980s, mainly raised by my grandmothers as my own family was large and quite poor, and I was the youngest. My grandfathers had passed away and I never met them. However, in one of my grandmothers' house, 
I had my first of many spiritual experiences that continue to this very day. Falling asleep one night as a five-year-old, I was startled to see the heavy-set silhouette of a large and tall man walking into my room and towards my bed when nobody was home but my grandmother. Terrified, I dived under the covers and stayed there till I fell asleep. My grandfather had lived in that house until his death, as had an uncle, although the uncle was not a tall man. But my grandfather was and had problems with alcohol and violence. From then on, my life became littered with similar experiences. The familiar night terrors, a black shape hovering over my bed as I lay there paralysed. Black shadows walking around the house, scratching and tapping at the walls and windows, and constant tingles indicating I was not alone. I grew up terrified, to be honest, for most of my childhood. A strange man often spoke to me in lucid dreams. I dreamed vividly of the sheets being pulled down by unseen hands and being levitated in the middle of the night once, only to suddenly find myself awake with all the lights on and the sheets pulled down where before the lights had been off and my sheets tucked firmly in. I cannot deny the experience felt like a dream, so perhaps it was, but the evidence and history seem to indicate otherwise. As I was moved from grandma to grandma, to aunties, back to my parents, and all around and all about over the North Island of New Zealand, these almost weekly incidents followed me, and even two of my cousins experienced them too. Nobody believed me. My mother had her own spiritual experiences and considered herself fae, but my father was very sceptical, until the most revealing incident of all. My father had left to take my sister to the airport, and my mother and I were at home alone eating breakfast and watching TV in her bed. I was eight years old. I left the room and walked up the hallway to the room at the end of the house that was my bedroom, around which strange events seemed to centre. Animals would avoid the room, and it was particularly heavy in spiritual presence. My mother was behind me, walking up to the bathroom next to the room. As I walked into the bedroom, the centre of the room twisted around, like a blurry vortex. The strange part is, from the several bookshelves around the room, books lifted from the shelves into the air and scattered around the room, picked up by the strange force. I screamed, not realising my mother was behind me, and had seen it all. It was almost as if a portal of some kind had opened like one of those old Windows screensavers that spun around the computer screen, twisting and blurring everything. In fact, that's almost exactly what it looked like, even if it was still some years away from invention. Perhaps, though, it was a spirit or entity. I saw nothing but a blur. If it were a portal, well, perhaps of me wishes enormously that I had walked into it to see where it would go or what would happen. But as an eight-year-old, I was scared out of my wits. To this day, my mother affirms the story, who is really the only witness other than myself I can count on for the majority of my supernatural encounters. From this point, I was moved out of that bedroom by my mother, who told me never to dabble in dark things, and grilled me about whether I had used a Ouija board or something similar. I hadn't, and just as an aside, I did not grow up in a religious family at all so there was little influence there. From this point on, things became a little more telekinetic. I would find pot plants swinging above my head in full view of crowded rooms, lights flickering on and off, TVs and CDs starting of their own accord, all centred around me. My new bedroom was next to what I had come to call the haunted room, but I kept the door firmly shut and only had a few experiences of night terrors after that but the poltergeist activity continued unabated. A truly bizarre experience is also sandwiched into these events, and even I have no idea still what to think about it. All that was happening led me to question the idea of God, and I prayed for proof one day. I prayed for an earthquake. An hour later, I walked into the house and my mother said, Did you feel that earthquake? My eyes nearly popped out of my head and I told her that I had asked for it as proof. 
She scolded me and said never to do things like that again. But that night, there was the biggest earthquake I had ever experienced in my life. New Zealand was constantly full of tremors, so it is not too bizarre, apart from the truly bizarre coincidence of that day. I still pray even though I feign agnosticism. I can never shake that experience, and I find praying very consoling. After this point and as I got older, a type of premonitory ability began to surface. This is the one thing that is the strongest to this day. I dreamed of both my grandmother's deaths and an uncle's, but only symbolically, through black animals, a raven, a horse, a moth, and never understood them till after the events. This still happens to this day, even to the point of the most trivial things in random conversations appearing in my dreams the night before I have them. However, the telekinetic events stopped as I reached my later teens. The spectres and night terrors all but vanished. I have seen many strange things since. Spirit lights, even last night one danced through my room as I watched a DVD, and flickers out of the corner of my eyes, but never anything substantially visual. However, I am very sensitive now to people and places, and often the most random information pops into my head and is often proved correct by very unsettled people. It's as if a lifetime of strange experiences has opened me to being psychic, or I was born with psychic ability, which led me to see and experience all sorts of strange things before I managed to control it. And I did make the effort to control it and defend myself against what was normally a negative force. I would visualise white light after reading about it, and I would pray and rationalise. But yes, the haunting was a negative experience generally. The other psychic and telekinetic events did not so much and do not bother me anymore. What do I actually believe about it all though? I now have two university degrees and I have a spiritual side. But I also have a strong background in science and work as both an internet technician and musician. So despite not doubting most of my experiences for a second, I do not try to analyse them objectively. I would say that the most scientifically likely explanation to everything was indeed some sort of poltergeist activity emanating from myself as a child, with an okay but often tumultuous upbringing shipped around homes. This activity continues through my psychic experiences, and I since believe that it is a quite normal, if not constant, ability in humans and other species. The ability somehow to transcend the normal's perception of time. However, I am also left with a distinct leaning toward believing that, yes indeed, there are spirits and entities out there, and yes there can be nasty ones, and that I was plagued and tormented by one of the latter. It's not all bad though. If that is indeed true, then at least it means one day I will get to see my beloved grandmothers again.